Let's talk about nostalgia. Today, I specifically want to dig into millennial nostalgia bait and child star confessionals. I don't know about you, but I have seen so many of my old faves from Disney and Nickelodeon popping up online, starting these tell-all podcasts. And guess what? I am absolutely here for it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For a few months, I've been interested in researching the millennial generation and why we've been hated for so long. One aspect of this is millennial culture. Though it is very broad in reality, online we have seen this specific type of cringy millennial mocked all the time. The 30-something who's still obsessed with Harry Potter. The Disney adults. The millennials who seem painfully stuck in the past. This particular millennial archetype is criticized for many reasons, including the tendency to self-infantilize, like the whole adulting is hard, small bean stuff. But yeah, I think the maligned millennial narrative is fascinating. So I'm interested in the consumers, the viewers, and why we as millennials seem to love nostalgia so much. I'm also interested in how these millennial former child stars navigate their own lives and careers in relation to nostalgia. Do you try to run from it or do you dive in? There's such a paradoxical dynamic of being known for one iconic role, still being recognized as that character, but then being criticized for living in the past if you ever reference it. So we're going to get into all of this. There's much to come. What is nostalgia anyway and why do we love it? I think we're all familiar with the concept of nostalgia, the bittersweet experience of reminiscing about the past, thinking about memories, looking back on things we used to do and enjoy. Apparently, nostalgia was once thought to be a mental disease, a disorder. Though that's not saying much considering all the misclassifications in the history of psychology. Wait, you're having feelings? You're sick. But there is something to be said about getting extremely preoccupied with nostalgia to the extent that it can start to harm us. We block out the world, we ignore the present, we try to live in the safety of the rose-tinted past. And again, this is an allegation often waged at millennials. We're stunted, we're obsessed with our childhoods, and we won't move on. And I've really been wondering, why are so many millennials so nostalgic? And are we really more nostalgic than other generations? This article by John Tierney states that nostalgia levels tend to be high among young adults, then dip in middle age and rise again during old age. Nostalgia helps us deal with transitions like when young adults move away from home or start their first jobs. We also tend to turn to nostalgia when we're lonely, and we are in somewhat of a loneliness epidemic right now. But also, we cannot ignore the role that the economy has played in the life trajectory of millennials. The Great Recession happened during our formative years, and we've felt the ripple effects ever since. As a generation, millennials were really the first to not hit those milestones that were expected. Many people can't afford to do what they want to do and have to put off these goals or forget about them completely because it's just not feasible. However, it is of course not just millennials. Gen Z is the new young adult generation and they're experiencing these hardships too. And in many ways, their lives have been even harder than millennials. So to tie this all together, number one, I think this is a big part of why many of us feel younger than we are. Maybe we have been stunted 
but by economic conditions. And also the pandemic skip, this term that describes feeling like you literally missed a number of crucial years in your life and your development because we more or less did. And two, when the present sucks and we have little hope for the future, it's less of a choice to live in the past and more of a coping mechanism. It can be comforting to think of simpler times before we had so much pressure and responsibility on our shoulders. That's not to say that everyone had a happy, perfect childhood. Definitely not. But I think that's all the more reason of why we feel so deeply connected to our childhood favorites and comfort shows and movies. Healthy doses of nostalgia can be healing. But still, when I'm thinking about millennial childhood nostalgia and Gen Z, I don't know if Gen Z is as hype about their era of Disney and Nick. Please let me know how you feel. I think millennial nostalgic ties are so strong because we had more collective universal experiences. Hilary Hoffauer calls these unifying cultural touchstones. We had a few channels and we watched TV live, no streaming. We were all literally tuned into the same programming, which was constantly running the same episodes over and over and over. Compare that to today, there is just so much more content everywhere and so much of it is algorithmically catered. So we don't have those universal formative media moments in the same ways that we used to. Because my age group still loves discussing this very specific window. That's So Raven, The Amanda Show, playing the Lilo and Stitch sandwich stacking game on Disney.com. Was this really the golden age of children's media, as many of us like to say? Or was it just that it was our age? But before we continue, this portion of today's video is sponsored by ThreadUp. ThreadUp is the world's largest online consignment and thrift store. I try to buy most of my clothes secondhand and ThreadUp makes it so much easier to do that. Rule number one, I always start with a wish list, and as you'll see, it's sweater season. So let's do a little search. I really like Everlane's tops, so I'd search Everlane turtleneck. It already has my sizes. I could filter for certain colors if I wanted to, different styles. Also, ThreadUp has a fun new feature. You can now set your favorites public, so you can check mine out and shop directly from them. Okay, so my first item today is this Everlane gingham turtleneck. I have it paired with my favorite trousers, my docks, and this delightful vintage vest. <laughs> I know this might be an acquired look, but the holiday spirit is alive in these sequins. I kind of feel like Diane Keaton. But this turtleneck is wonderful. I was just telling my friend that I needed a lighter, thinner turtleneck that's good for layering under big, chunky sweaters. And it delivered. Next up on my list was a cardigan. I have been looking for like the perfect cozy, throw it on over anything cardigan. And I found it. This is a Fioroni cardigan. I was, I was looking for grandpa. Grandpa cardigan. It also reminds me of the dad from Casper, which I love. Also, it is cashmere. I have never owned anything cashmere and I was really excited to be able to find this secondhand. Estimated retail is $345. This is a this is a pricey sweater. I got it for $112, which is still a lot of money, but it really is very quality. It fulfilled the exact purpose that I needed and I'm really excited about this one. Then we have another cardigan. This one's more grandma. It even has literal shoulder pads. The brand is Alfred Dunner. It's so cutie. Got the little floral, the 
little buttons. You can tuck it in, you can wear it out. I'm, I'm baking cookies. Sweetie grandma. These are simple old navy sweatpants. I know, I know you might be thinking, everyone has a good pair of sweatpants. I didn't. I had been stealing my husband's. I got these, expecting them to just be ordinary pants, and they actually, dare I say, changed me. And by that, I mean I've just been wearing them every day. Estimated retail is $35. I got them for $17.99. I think my cost per wear is definitely below a dollar already. And lastly, I have this Madewell striped sweater, a little cropped turtleneck. I love, first of all, how loose the neck is. Not choking me, not, not restrictive. That's a big problem I have with turtlenecks. This is good, I can breathe, it's so cozy. It's so easy to just throw on. It looks great with a simple pair of jeans. You can roll up the arms, it's a winner. So next time you have some shopping to do, check out ThreadUp, bring your wish list. You can also shop my picks with my link below and use code Tiffany to get an extra 40% off your first order. Continuing on, the economy of nostalgia. There is obviously so much money to be made in this. Reboots, remakes, and these are often seen as cheap cash grabs because they're often produced without much effort or care. But even with blatant fan service or nostalgia bait, many fans will eat it up. Like the recent Mean Girls Walmart commercials, the people in the comments are loving it. While writing this, I've wondered, what is driving the nostalgia craze? Is it the audiences or is it the industry? Do we crave it or are we fed it? Spoiler, I think it's both. Obviously there is a huge demand for nostalgia content and where there's demand, there's money. For example, the fan convention circuit. This can be a really solid source of income for former stars who played iconic roles. In the past, this was stigmatized. It was considered embarrassing as if you're a has-been and the best thing you can possibly do is go to the cons and sign some autographs. Is living in the past embarrassing really? Or does it just make sense financially? It can be very lucrative. This article mentioned TV guest stars earning 10, 20, even $30,000 in one weekend at a convention. And obviously the bigger star you are, the more you can earn. But if you aren't into crowds or taking pictures with fans, there are many other outlets for celebrities to connect with them and make bank, of course. The rise of the rewatch podcast. We've seen such a huge podcasting boom in general, even more so since the start of COVID. Lots of people were at home seeking comfort and many actors were out of work. Specifically though, there's been a huge rise in the genre of rewatch podcasts where actors or others involved in production rewatch a show episode by episode and share their commentary. But of course, in this video, I wanna focus on millennial favorites. And we've seen rewatch podcasts for shows like Ned's Declassified, Wizards of Waverly Place, even Stevens, Full House. By the way, while writing this, I realized that Scott Kramer made an entire video about this already months ago. So if you wanna hear more about it, check that out. But this really is a perfect time for rewatch podcasts. It makes so much sense. With streaming, many older shows have been invigorated and introduced to new audiences. Like when Disney Plus launched and it had its whole back catalog of 90s and 2000s favorites. So it makes sense to take advantage of renewed interest and attention in these shows. In fact, it would be very hard to have a rewatch podcast if it wasn't easily accessible and available for viewers. We talk about the making of our favorite moments, mm -hmm. things we remember from that time in our lives, and also tangents about our adult lives. We're gonna relive it so that you can relive it with us. 
That's a pretty good pitch that rings true to a lot of what these rewatch podcasts do. It's nostalgia, it's reflection, it's talking about what's happened since, where we are now. We were kids then, you were kids then, and look at us all grown up. So interestingly, these podcasts are actually all from the same podcast network called Podco, which was founded by none other than Christy Carlson Romano. She was a Disney icon known for starring in Kim Possible, even Stevens, Cadet Kelly. Now she's building her empire on the foundation of nostalgia. She's made collab videos with other former child stars. She has a celebrity interview podcast called Vulnerable, and she launched a new podcast recently with Annalisa Vanderpool from That's So Raven. I actually ended up with an entire video worth of research about Christy Carlson Romano. So watch me analyze her YouTube career on my second channel. It is so fascinating, I could not bear to get rid of all that information. Anyway, what is the purpose of a rewatch podcast? Like I said, number one, you're capitalizing on nostalgia, reminding the public you exist. Don't you miss me? Number two, you can share behind the scenes stories, kind of like DVD commentary. So again, you're trying to appeal to super fans who might have a lot of questions, They want to know about on-set relationships, rumors, how things were made, everything. For example, I love the Ned's Declassified podcast. I've listened to many, many episodes. It's really nice seeing the whole trio back together because some rewatch podcasts only have like two people out of a whole group, but here we have Ned Moe's Cookie. It's really satisfying. It's really sweet. And also one little bit of gossip that I learned from the podcast, Ned and Moe's dated IRL. (laughs) Eight-year-old me feels so vindicated right now. But anyway, purpose number three, and this is a big one, you get to monetize your own image. This is huge. Many actors are on hit shows, they're extremely well known, People assume they must be super rich, but often that is not true. So the chance to monetize your own image is really powerful, especially for former child stars. Too often their earnings are stolen by their parents or they get screwed over by people they worked with. That is incredibly hurtful to work throughout your entire childhood and not even have that money to show for your labor. Some people might say, boohoo, get a job. And first of all, many working actors do have regular jobs to pay the bills. But also, when you're getting recognized as like a famous person and working a regular job, it can be a little awkward and demoralizing. You can't just be an anonymous barista. People are gonna come in and like take pictures or ask for your autograph. It can make it a tough work environment. Annalisa Vanderpoel has told this story recently that she worked at a restaurant and served Ashley Tisdale, who was like, one of her peers during their time on Disney. One time I ran into Ashley Tisdale and I had to serve Ashley Tisdale and- Are you kidding me? No. She was so uncomfortable. I'm fine, girl. And allegedly Ashley Tisdale made the moment pretty awkward and like seemed uncomfortable. And it just sucks to think that like, you're just trying to survive, move on, you're trying to pay the bills, but then you might be judged for being in a lower position than you should be in. There is so much here about people looking down at service jobs, especially if you had ever previously been in a more prestigious position. It's messy and classist. But a lot of celebrities have told similar stories and said that it's kind of tricky trying to go back and work a job, especially if it's public facing, because you're still just too, you're still a little too famous. Famous enough to be recognized and bothered, but not famous 
enough to be super rich and not need that job. But this brings us back to the importance of residuals. Back in the day, landing a network TV job was major, especially because of the residuals. Those paychecks helped working actors and writers stay afloat between gigs, between auditions, and especially when you're thinking about children's shows that were heavily syndicated and constantly airing reruns, those should be a huge cash cow. <laughs> you should be raking it in. Here's an example from Desmond Chiam. My first gig was a non-speaking $2,000 role on Bones, a network show, and in residuals, I'd say I'd made close to three times that amount. On any other streaming gig, I've made fractions of my pay. We're talking a few hundred, maybe. And on the highest end of the spectrum, apparently, Friends still makes Warner Bros. $1 billion every year. Because they had a very solid syndication deal, the stars still earn about $20 million a year from residuals. R.I.P. Matthew Perry. Compare that to today. The platforms and the studios have made billions from streaming, new and older programming, but the writers and actors who made these shows don't get a piece of that success. They've been earning literal pennies. Many developments happened while writing the script, including that the SAG strike finally ended, and I am so stoked. The battle for residuals was a huge part of those negotiations. We love unions. I am just so happy for all the gains that SAG-AFTRA and the WGA were able to win. This is wonderful. Anyway, I feel like residuals are a really big part of like how I think about child stars and that experience because for many of these child stars, if they had been earning decent residuals that whole time since their show was made, even if their parents stole all their money by the time they turned 18, which is horrible, they at least would still have some residual checks coming in that maybe could help them stay afloat like working actors used to. So yeah, I just think overall it's like to get screwed over by your own parents or your own family is one thing. It's horrific. But also to know and to see your show like going up on Netflix or going back on Disney and it's popular and people are loving it and you're still not getting a piece of that. It's got to be such a slap in the face. So I'm really excited for these changes. So with all that being said, again, still some people might see these rewatch podcasts or similar things as just cash grabs. Simple nostalgia bait, that's it. They just want money, they don't care. But again, I think especially for child stars who made so much money for Disney and Nickelodeon, I'm really happy for them to finally have some autonomy over their own image to be able to monetize their own face, their iconic characters, the experiences that they've had on these shows. And I really think a lot of this millennial child star nostalgia is really about deconstruction. It's about processing their childhoods and reclaiming the narrative. There were times where it was sort of painful in, oh, the, sure. in the pursuit of the dream and yes. Ned's is still the biggest thing I've done yes. and it's back there mm -hmm. and people are still like, hey, I love you in that. Yeah. Why aren't you still acting? Uh -huh. And it's like, I've been auditioning for 20 years. But coming back to do this with these people getting to see yes. you, yeah. now, now it feels like, ah. Does like it I'm, feel like you're healing? Absolutely. Healing. Let's start off with that whole trope about the fucked up former child star. Allison Stoner calls this the toddler to train wreck pipeline. Drug addiction, psychiatric hospitalizations, decimated fortunes, sexual trauma, incarceration, suicide. Name something comparable to the pop culture phenomenon of child stardom. 
We've all witnessed so many former child stars become a train wreck and the media narratives are not sympathetic at all. We look at them as if they squandered their fame and fortune. They messed themselves up. The fallen former child star is so common, it's almost a cliche. But this phenomenon is not just a product of individual failures. It is the result of systemic, industry-wide abuse and exploitation. Many of us get stuck on trauma that happened during our formative years, bullying, negative childhood experiences. It can take our whole lives to process that. Imagine going through that and publicly, having those additional layers of pressure and attention and scrutiny. So now we're witnessing an entire generation processing and sharing in real time. More people opening up builds a really cohesive narrative about what happens to celebrities and child stars overall. I, of course, loved Jeanette McCurdy's memoir, and I've been listening to Alison Stoner's podcast, and I think these rewatch podcasts are a really big part of this reckoning as well. Again, I find it so powerful and so important to hear these stories and to really understand what they've gone through. What is this experience like for children? Because it's not just about these individual people who were actors 20 years ago. It's about how children are treated today. It's about the standards that the industry has set in what is normal or how to treat children or disregarding children as people at all because they're young. So I find it fascinating, but I also find it just like really crucial um, to be empathetic or sympathetic, even if they have been rich or famous at some period in their life. It's like the trade-off, what they had to give up in order to pursue that is huge. And when you're talking about child actors, all these decisions were made for them. They never had the autonomy to make such major life decisions Really, they were too young to understand. One thing I'm constantly amazed by when I listen to these stories is just how confusing and psychologically damaging fame can be, especially when you become famous as a child. Your perception of the whole world is warped. Your sense of self is tied to your public persona or a character you played. You don't get to experience most normal kid things. And on top of that, you often also have the immense pressure of supporting your family financially. Child stardom hypes up your ego. It makes you believe that you're special and talented. You experience such high highs so early in life, then suddenly you're not that precocious actor anymore. It's even more confusing when you've been on a network like Disney or Nickelodeon that claim your family. You literally grew up with them. They love you. You're a star. They're talking about spinoffs. And then all of a sudden you're done. Unless you're the rare lucky kid who can handle the transition to grown-up roles, suddenly your whole young life of work experience seems like it was for nothing. So not only does it hurt your ego to not be the cute child star anymore, but your lack of real-world experience becomes apparent very quickly. Even for those who want to move on beyond acting, what other skills do you have? Generally, these young actors do not have a strong education. They've been learning on set with tutors, it's been very disconnected, and there are services that will help you pass your classes or get your GED, even if you really didn't do the work or don't understand the material. Because again, the job is the number one priority, not actually ensuring that they do get a solid education. Then, of course, you've been busy acting, so you don't have normal job experience either. Alison Stoner described how they literally did not know how to take care of themselves in the most basic ways, like hygiene, scheduling their day, because their entire childhood, that had been taken care of for them. For me, the lack of bodily autonomy has 
shown up in this pattern of self-neglect over the years. I remember when I stepped away from the industry, I had the hardest time remembering to brush my teeth and comb my hair. Whenever I wasn't on set, I looked like a disheveled mess because I only did these things for industry purposes. At least, you know, that's how my kid brain made sense of it. It's such a rude awakening to realize you might not be capable of taking care of yourself or living a normal life. And then you just start to spiral. Who am I? Allison Stoner and Jeanette McCurdy have both discussed feeling this painful dissonance between their on-camera personas and their real lives. You're playing these cool, fun characters, but your real life is a mess. You hate yourself. Your family is dysfunctional. But people all see you as this perfect child or this fun, happy-go-lucky character. But there's also like the confusion in your own brain. When you're constantly performing and auditioning and becoming what other people want you to be, it can be really difficult to develop your own sense of self. I've been master accommodator, whatever the other person in the room wants and needs. I don't need anything. I have no preferences, no identity. I'm easy to be around, easy to work with, forever likable, never a burden. But then even when you're starting to do the work and figuring out who you are and you want to move on, you want to separate yourself, often child actors get pigeonholed, which basically means they're stuck in a box, they're typecast, people only see them as that one thing. Sometimes having such an iconic role can be a double-edged sword because people can't even see you as anything else. But it's been a it's been a journey with with it still being the biggest thing that people know me from. I've tried to move on, but the world won't let me. <laughs> you think I only want to be known for the thing I did 20 years ago? Like, you think as an artist, like, I'm stoked that everyone knows me from this one thing? But then we come to the comeback. Another thing that people say in regard to these, like, celebrity podcasts is like, okay, if it's not a cash grab, then it must be they're trying to have their comeback, they want a reboot, and that's the only reason that they're coming back to talk about this again. And... I think that can be true, but it does make sense that a rewatch podcast would be the perfect jumping off point for a reboot, and then that would be a great jumping off point for a whole comeback. A chance to finally reinvent yourself, introduce yourself as a full adult human to the audience that used to love you and maybe the industry people that you used to work with. Or if you're not interested in reinventing yourself, maybe you just completely throw yourself into the nostalgia, but at least now it's on your own terms. 2021, I got the gang together to pitch a reboot. There were problems I was try trying to solve in my, my life. Like what? Where's my f career? Why do I have no money? But why does an entire generation of people know me? Yeah. It, it literally was the solution to all my problems. After wanting to not be Ned for the rest of my life, it actually started to come back around of like, well, maybe I do embrace this thing mm -hmm. because it's beautiful and we can make a show. We could talk to the same audience about surviving your 20s, which is like a, a rough time. But I do really think a reboot would make sense for this situation because Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide was like a how-to. It's all about life advice for like middle schoolers. And so this podcast, they're coming back, they're talking about life. They're talking about their trauma, what they've healed from. Lindsay's talked a lot about her addictions and eating disorders, everything that she's been working through, being sober. So in a sense, the podcast is also a bit of a an adult survival guide from the real perspective of these actors. So I think making a Ned's Adult Life Survival Guide reboot TV show also makes sense. Again, we're talking about life advice. Of course, that's that's easy to upgrade to an older audience. 
You could still make it funny and silly. It, it feels good on the screen and even off the screen, bro. Like, whatever you want to do, dog, let's do it. We have this huge fan base for this show that enjoys our chemistry. Why not utilize them? If we want to revisit this stuff, let's do it and let's try to amplify our impact. And we pitched it in the summer of 2021 and uh, the studio said, great idea. No. <laughs> I just think like compared to all the reboot possibilities out there, things that made less sense have been made. So like, why not? Hey, hey, industry. <sighs> I know you're trying to see if there's any interest in this. I'm interested. Thank you. That's all it took. They said, wow, Tiffany Ferg. Tiffany Ferg's in. Anyway, I'm losing it. <laughs> so final thoughts. I know this one was all over the place, but I needed to connect all the pieces. Millennial culture, nostalgia, 90s, 2000s, the, the psychology of celebrity. And yeah, I hope it was interesting. Again, these are just things I've been interested in my personal life. I have consumed a lot of this content myself and I wanted to dig deeper into the the connections. First of all, I think we absolutely need more protections for child stars. And I do think that these former child stars coming back into the limelight and talking about these issues, highlighting them is a crucial part of this fight. You know, bringing people together, having the conversations, what happened to you? What experiences did you have? And what could have helped that? What could have prevented that? What kind of measures do we need in order to keep children safe? And I think the, the last other thing that I thought about throughout this was like, with all these tell-alls, especially of the trauma and abuse and, and exploitation that child stars face, does the tell-all ruin the nostalgia? Because nostalgia is typically a more positive experience, but then suddenly you're told, you know, that these stars had a horrible time, they went through traumatic things. Does that make it harder or more impossible to still watch that show and feel those warm and fuzzies? I think that might be a component. Again, this is just, just a question. I think this whole idea of deconstructing old media is always important. Ultimately, I think the thing that is the most cringy about nostalgic media or nostalgia bait is just when people aren't able or willing to engage critically with that piece of media. When you're a little too defensive about your old faves and you won't hear a word of anything otherwise. We all benefit from paying attention to how things are made and caring about the impact that it has on people. Engaging with something more critically can make us appreciate it more than ever. So it's worth it. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this. Thank you again to ThreadUp for sponsoring today's video. You can thrift my picks and use my code Tiffany to get an extra 40% off and free shipping for your first order. And I've got to give a shout out to my patrons. Thank you so much for supporting me on Patreon and watching my bonus content there. Extra thank yous to my executive producer tier. We have Abby Hayden, Al Swigart, Chloe Noel, Freshly Laundered, Ivy Adam, Jackie King, Jill Hoffman, Matt Gray, Megan Collins, MegCat33, Morgan Tisa, Nicole Louise, Sarah Kemi, and Stevie May. Thank you so much for being patrons. All right, that is all for today. Again, stay tuned for that bonus video about Christy Carlson Romano on my second channel and stay tuned for future internet analysis videos. Let me know what your favorite show from the early 2000s was. Okay, thanks. Bye.